we're going to talk um, about a story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. If uh, there's a way in which you'd like to follow along, uh, then you're, you'd be encouraged to open up to Acts chapter 12 or scroll there or however you get there. Um, a fun story, a lot of our translations are probably going to um, have a heading for this section of Scripture that talks something about Peter's escape from prison. And, of course, that's the story we're going to be reading, but we're going to be talking less about the actual escape uh, from prison, although a lovely story, and we're going to be talking more about some of the conditions and circumstances that were happening around uh, that particular escape from prison. Um, you'll also notice, for those who um, are able to recall to memory some of the more intricate details of what we call Holy Week, that is, Jesus' arrest, um, the, the, the different trials that he's put on, and then his eventual resurrection, and him revealing himself to the disciples um, 40 days after he rose from the dead. You are going to pick, if you can recall those details, it's okay if you can't, but if you're that familiar with those details, you're going to find some profound imagery, some parallels that are taking place between this story and the resurrection of Jesus, which is always exciting when we can talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So, with those things in mind, allow me to read our story this morning from Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. And we'll read the first 17 verses of this chapter. It was about this time that King Herod, this is a familiar character, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Just massive parallels here. Massive. After arresting him, Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring out for public trial after Passover. Come on. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church earnestly prayed to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and the guards stood at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light uh, shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up and said, quick, get up. And immediately, the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. Peter did so. And the angel said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So Peter followed the angel out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. The, Peter and angel passed the first and second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading out into the city, and it opened for them by itself and they walked through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel disappeared. And then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me 
from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. And they said, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they said, well, it must be his angel then. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he said, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he went to another place. And we will stop there. I, I, I don't want us to miss the imagery. I didn't have plans to really highlight it, but I don't want us to miss it. We've got our politicians accusing and arresting people. Um, we, have, um, we have what the majority of the people want being done by the politicians just to appease them. This is, this is Jesus and, and Barabbas, right? I mean, this is the same thing. Who should I release to you and who should we kill? This is the same. He, he's appeasing the public. We have Passover being near this event. Um, and then we get all the way down to when, and I don't want us to miss this, is when, is what the, the scriptures call us, the servant girl answering the door. It was a woman. It was, it was females that were the first people to encounter the recently freed Christ. And when they went to tell people about it, did not believe them also, Right? I mean, so many parallels here. So what I want us to know is that somehow, some way in this story, and what we're going to talk about in just a moment, resurrection is the central theme. So that we're going to be talking about prayer today, and I want us to know that kind of where prayer should lead us and where our prayers should lead us and where we should be led through our prayers is resurrection is freedom, is liberation. The, the parallels are too thick to ignore. So with that in mind, chapter 12 of the book of Acts shows us that the church is continuing to be persecuted, featuring a story of an impossible escape from prison. And it is clear once again that God has in fact chosen Peter right, to lead the early Christians, providing another vision, providing another angel of the Lord, providing another reason to celebrate and give God praise, not only before the believers, but before the watching world. And that is very important, too, is this idea of witness, this idea of witnessing before the watching world. No, we do have a reason to give thanks. And while we should believe that there could come a day where God would move just as powerfully in our lives as he did Peter's, there is a storyline happening around Peter's escape from prison 
that provides space for each and every one of us to enter into right now. We don't have to wait another second to enter into this story without needing to wait for us to feel like we're trapped <laughs> or, or in prison or in chains. And the way in which we are going to enter that story is through this idea of praying in agreement with other believers. The scriptures tell us that while Peter was in prison, in verse 5, that the church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. This was a common practice for the first generation of believers, that is, to be praying in agreement with one another. To read that the church was praying sends a unique message to us, the reader, and that message reveals early approaches to prayer. So we're getting a little, we're getting a bit of a picture into how the first group of believers viewed prayer as a practice. Not necessarily what they prayed, but how they approached the practice itself. And that was corporately and cooperatively. Two words starting with C. Corporate, cooperative. Corporate meaning that the burdens of the needs were shared. So it's corporate, all of us were sharing the same need. All of us are going to share it corporately. Same burdens, same needs. And there was cooperation in that they were agreeing amongst themselves what the actual needs were. And in this particular situation, it was, we got to get Peter out of jail. <laughs> it's our leader. This is, this is the apostle Peter. We got to get him out of jail. So there, there was an agreement, but they were all sharing in it as well. And while there are absolutely examples of prayer of this kind of spirit in the church today, that meaning cooperative and corporate, my observations, maybe your observations as well, would lead us to believe that prayer today, and I'm speaking in a very specific way, I'm talking about 21st century Western Protestant Christianity, I'm speaking very narrowly right now, my observations would lend me to believe that prayer is largely seen or approached as more of an individual act where I or you have the opportunity to have a direct line of communication open with God. Viewing prayer in this way is not wrong. And it is not unhealthy. It is, in fact, the precise reason why we've implemented the rhythm of prayers of the people. We want you to be praying to God about the things that are on your heart. However, I would submit to us all this morning that to view prayer exclusively in this individualized manner leaves us short of a more full prayer life. Once again, it's not wrong to view prayer this way. It's not bad to view prayer that way. It's just not as full as it could be. And that's what I want us to get is just full, just fullness, big picture. 
For example, a corporate and cooperative prayer is evidenced in our sending prayer that we pray every single week. We have, a, we have an example of individual prayer, prayers of the people, and we do that every single week where you people, us people, we all pray. But we have another example of corporate prayer as well, and that's evidenced in our closing prayer together every Sunday morning where we use the phrase, grant us, and that we may have eyes to see like you. We use that language on purpose because it's imagery that Jesus himself gives us. The prayer that he teaches us to pray, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, we just read the Lord's Prayer as it's shown in Luke, which is a little bit different than Matthew. But Jesus himself uses the language, our Father, and give us our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. I believe that's used on purpose as well. There are individual expressions, but today we're talking about corporate and cooperative expressions of prayer, and I think that's what we're getting in this story. We have every reason to believe that the corporate and cooperative nature of the early Christians helped fuel their ability to withstand persecution, get, get this list of two, withstand persecution and exponentially grow in life-giving influence in the process. Now, I'm not talking about numbers on Sunday morning increased when they were being persecuted, because that wasn't the goal. Hopefully you've picked up on that by now, is that was not the goal of these first century believers who were meeting in homes because there was nowhere else to meet. And it was just dependent on the size of your home. That was how big your church was. What they were concerned about was being a life-giving witness to the people that they were around. Whether it was widows getting cut out of the distribution of food, so someone put their foot down and said, we need to get these widows some food. We read about that a few weeks ago. Or whatever else filling needs, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, these, these needs of the neighbors, they just filled them with life-giving influence. And they grew in their influence while being persecuted. So how else could a movement grow numerically and geographically over generations in the midst of trials? This is how as they were mutually burdened with God's business. They shared a mutual, corporate, shared burden with God's business. God's business of reconciling the world back to God and caring for those that have become lost in the shuffle of the rat race. That is God's business. From the first page to the last one. God is in the business of reconciling the world back to God's self and caring for people that have become lost in the shuffle. Peter himself, in one of his own letters, that would be 1 Peter, if you've got some time this week looking for some reading, 1 Peter. He paints this picture. He says, you also 
are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. So whether we are near or far, scattered, gathered, we are being built into a home. Us as individuals are stones and us collectively create places for the Holy Spirit of God to dwell. And I believe that the people of Reachway Church, both gathered and scattered, and it's in these last couple months where that is very profound, people who make up Reachway are more than just the people in this room, right? A lot of us have friends that are not here because they can't be here for a couple of different reasons. And um, so I'm talking about gathered and scattered, Reachway Church folks. I believe that each and every one of those people have so much to offer this world. You have no idea how much I believe that every single person a part of Reachway has so much to offer this world that is begging for glimmers of light. This world, pastorally, what I need to do when I turn on the news, read the newspaper, listen to NPR, radio, whatever else, is I need to sift through the opinions and the hot takes, and I pastorally need to find the brokenness because Jesus cares about brokenness and he wants to heal it. So there's so much swirling around right now in this world, but it's all opinion. And you know who gets left behind when opinions get thrown like grenades at different camps? Is people who are hurting. People who have friends and family and loved ones that are getting beat up, shot, killed, paralyzed, losing their businesses to rioters. I don't, once again, I do not care the side of the aisle. You have no idea how much I do not care about that stupid aisle. There are people getting lost on both sides and they're hurting and that's who Jesus cares about. This isn't even in my notes. I need to get off of this soapbox. This world is begging for light. Begging. And you're the light of the world. Someone's got to be it. So it's my hope that we all share that desire that I just soapboxed about. That's my hope, is that we can all share that desire. And we can all share that burden. I want us to share it, but it's about time that we really start voicing it. So I want to ask all of us, corporately, I want to ask, have we asked, that's the question, have we asked? I'm talking about prayer, and I'm viewing it corporately in this particular moment in time. What has the church, and I'm talking, I'm the pastor of this this two-year-old church, what have we as a church asked for? Like Jesus assures us in Luke chapter 11, we read it earlier, if we ask, we're going to be given something. And if we seek, 
we are going to find something. And if we knock, something is going to be opened for us. But we got to ask. So, have we asked? And what should we ask for? And how should we ask? Perhaps we should ask, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 8, with shameless audacity. I love those words. So I don't want us to forget that God has entrusted us with a huge responsibility, and that is to steward creation and care for it well. It's a big responsibility. It's the same responsibility that the first two humans that we read about in the scriptures were given. The Garden of Eden is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create uh, humans last, and, and when I create these humans, God turns to them, and he turns to Adam and Eve, and he doesn't say, do whatever you want with this. You can take advantage of it. You can suck it dry. You can burn it. You can uh, use it for your selfish gain. No, he says, steward it. And treat it like it's your own. And you would never want your own stuff to be burned. And you would never want your own stuff to be wasted. And you would never want your own stuff to be destroyed. That's how you've got to view the world and the people of this world. That's a big task. The pressure's on. If you were here last week, we talked about this idea. The pressure is on, like for sure. But I want you to know that God trusts each and every one of us to do it in our own unique ways, in our own corners of our neighborhoods and cities and wherever we find ourselves. God entrusts you to be able to do that. So don't think for a moment that you can't. And we must do this together, not becoming discouraged by the conditions that are around us right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have a spirit among us, it's the spirit of God, that makes us a most resilient people. This first century church persecution after persecution, after arrest, after murder, did not stop this group of people. It didn't. It didn't slow them down, and we have every reason to believe that it was their fuel somehow, <laughs> that the obstacles ended up being just more reason to do it. So we can't become discouraged. It's that same spirit that kept the church that we're reading about week after week going. It's the same spirit that we have amongst us right now. So let us showcase this resilience to the watching world. You are the light of the world, each and every one of you. And you are the salt of the earth, each and every one of you. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it.